Good morning, everybody. A few weeks ago, a few of our staff guys wore vests to the office. And not only did they wear vests, uh, by the way, I had a vest on that same morning and left the office. And they stayed and they took their picture. They gathered on the third floor office area and they took their picture in front of the exposed brick. Because people that take their picture in front of exposed brick are kind of cool, right? Kind of kind of street cred to them. And they took their picture and the picture, it was, uh, th- these guys need to be called by name. Nick Crawford, Jeff Hightower, Daniel Wagner. And they posted their picture, maybe you saw it all over our social media account. And it said, staff, it said vest days, staff guys wearing vest. And, and Daniel even hashtag vest friends. And I thought, they didn't even say, not pictured, Robert Green, also wearing it. They didn't even give me that kind of love. Isn't that sad? So today I wear a vest in honor of my sadness. You guys don't feel bad for me. I do want to put the lyrics, sorrowful lyrics, sad line to a song. I lie awake. I become like a bird alone on a roof. Why is this sad? It's sad because dude can't sleep, right? I mean, the older you get, the more you value sleep, right? I've talked about this before, but the older people talk about sleep. When the old people see each other in the morning, what do they ask? How'd you sleep? We got a whole bunch of kids in the children's area down there. I guarantee you none of the kids in the children's area said, hey, how'd you sleep last night? <laughs> Tell me about the quality and duration of your sleep. They don't do that, right? But the older you get, the more you long for sleep. And it's really sad. Some of you can feel this. This guy can't sleep. I'm lying awake. That's sad. And it's sad because he said, I have become. In other words, this is a part of his identity here. Uh, guilt, I've taught you before, guilt is like, I'm, I'm wrong, I did something wrong and I need to correct it. And guilt can be good. There's a sorrowful guilt that's a good guilt that leads to change. But shame is deeper than guilt. Shame says, this is who I am. It's not just something I've done. This is who I am. And here we see that sense of shame. I lie awake and I have become, it, it is who I am. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. And that's sad, isn't it? Because the roof part is cool. Like roofs are cool. Humans love roofs. But birds on a roof, that's kind of sad. Uh, James Taylor had a song, Up on the Roof. Any of you old enough to remember that? Like, good things happen up on the roof. I've, I've, I've had great times with friends up on a roof somewhere, and somewhere along the way. I've defined a relationship. Well, that didn't work out, but I've uh, hung out with friends, and my wife threw my <clears throat> 50th birthday party uh, up on the Fondren Corner roof, right? Like, roofs can be happy places, but not if you're a bird and not if you're alone. And the saddest part of this song written by the psalmist in Psalm 102 and verse 7 Oh, so long ago. It's sad because of that part, that he's alone. And this morning, I want to start just at the outset. I want to leave you with it, but there's a couple of big ideas in the message today. The first is that we are made for friendship. And right next to it, squeezed up next to it, friendship makes us. You were created to be in community. Friends make us. You're made for it and it makes us. Here's the idea there. Proverbs 13, 22. I don't have the verse on the screen, but that doesn't mean it's not in there. Proverbs 13, verse 20, rather. Proverbs 13, 20 says, a wise person or one who walks among the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. One friend of mine put it this way, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. I believe that's true. I believe it's true because it's in the Bible, but I believe it's true because I've seen it in life. If you walk among the wise, you will grow wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Last night at about 845, I was on Lakeland in my truck with my dog in the back seat. I'm driving. I remember it so well. Everything, the sights and the sounds. I know it made the news, but I'm driving and I see Flowood cop pull out. 
Flowwood's fine. It's about Airport Road. And every time a cop pulls out of my vicinity, I, you know, I do what you do, right? I get a little nervous, look at the speedometer, say a prayer, get ready to get my pastor spill, um, hoping that the cop that pulled me over, I hope I did his wedding, you know, a couple years ago. That's happened before. That's always good. But I'm kind of, I'm rehearsing and worrying a little bit. And thankfully, whew, he goes by me and he gets on the bumper. I mean, on the bumper of another car. I'm thinking, okay, that's, you know, tailgating if you're a citizen. And he was right up on that bumper. And it took about another minute or two to realize something was going down. And he stayed with that car. And thank God for our law enforcement officials, by the way. But he stayed tight on that car. He was hugging the bumper. And then all of a sudden, you know, he turned the siren on. This guy wouldn't pull over. So I thought, I'm going to speed up a little bit myself. Maybe I can help the officer. I preached. <laughs> I preached last Sunday on David and Goliath. And, you know, kind of got that heroic bravery thing going on. So I, I sped up a little bit. And we were all going fast. And I tried to, you know, it was a delicate balance of I wanted to see the action, but I wanted to stay back and da da da. And this guy was going, and I could see backups coming, Flowood and JPD. And around Ridgewood Road at River Hills, the, the turn was made, and this guy went careening into a pole. And he was captured. And I tell you, great, great work by law enforcement officials. There was eight or ten vehicles right there on the scene, and there was smoke, and they were apprehending this guy. Now, I don't know anything about the story. I'm a pastor. I'm a follower of Jesus. I hope and pray for the redemptive potential in this young man. But I guarantee you there, he didn't have good friends in the car with him. I guarantee you there wasn't someone wise in the vehicle or wise in his life saying, hey, this, this is not a good idea. When, you're, when you see the lights, just pull over. Don't flee on foot. This is not a good idea. Let me put it maybe more simply and more normally. If you got high or stoned last night, chances are you probably had three or four friends who were also. If you're running hard after God, chances are you probably have three or four friends in your life who are also, because if you walk among the wise, you will grow wise. But if you're a companion of fools, you will suffer harm. We usually pitch that verse to our young people, and I hope you all hear it, but that's for everybody. That's for everybody. I know some folks in their 70s still making some new friends. Isn't that great? Friendship, we're made for friendship, and friendship makes you. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. We're in this series, a lot of you know, it's a series called Flawed Hero. We're looking at the life of David. And in week one, we looked at 1 Samuel 16. We looked at David as shepherd. Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 17, David as warrior. Do you remember any of this? We said that Israel had been led by judges. Then they got a king. That king was Saul. The king was not a good king. In our day, in this political climate, there's something in every heart. We talk about it. We pray about it. We debate it. But we want good leadership, don't we? We want a good leader to lead our country. I'm thankful for checks and balances. I'm thankful for three branches of government. I'm, I, I'm thankful for expression of free speech in our country. But this was a kingdom, and it was led a little differently. And kingdoms had great rule and great power. And King Saul started with good intentions. But as you'll see in this story today, he was full of paranoia. He was jealous, he was, and that led to paranoia. And he had a problem with anger. And Saul wasn't a good king, and they were looking for a better king, the next king. And we see a shepherd boy, one of Jesse's seven sons, the one that was least likely, the youngest son, the shepherd boy, was the one that was chosen. And I put a great principle in front of you that God often chooses the ones we wouldn't choose and uses them in ways that we wouldn't. Why? That's just God. First Samuel 16, 7, don't look at the outward appearance or their height. We don't see like God sees. We look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And we see that in the shepherd boy, the one who would play the harp who was the great singer and songwriter. And he wrote 
one of the most famous songs ever, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a great declaration of contentment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. And we said as we looked at David the shepherd, that by saying the Lord is my shepherd, he is declaring that he is the sheep. And the reason he was a great king is because he knew his place. He knew that he wasn't a king. He was just a sheep. And last week in 1 Samuel 17, we looked at the warrior, David, in battle. And David asked the army of Israel. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And to Saul, he said, I'll do it. I'll fight him. I'll slay him. Put me in. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Shall he not also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine? And David, the shepherd's boy with a few rocks in his pouch, slays the giant. You know, one of the most famous stories of all. And we see this warrior. And as it, as it develops, we see, we see David as a friend. And we meet a man named Jonathan. And before we go any further, I want to teach you something today because a lot of you come to church to learn, right? Nod your head. You come to church to learn, so I'm going to teach you something today. Here's the Hebrew word for friend. And how cool is this? The Hebrew word for friend is also the same word for secret. Isn't that good? There's, there's an attachment there. There's something there. There's this idea that you need someone. You need someone to know you deeply. And some of you need me to say this today. Look at me and listen to me. Are you with me? You can't tell everybody everything. All right? You with me? You can't tell everybody everything. Well, I'm in church. You, not at church. I'm, I'm signed up for a group. Good. But I don't, you can't tell everybody everything. And in your lifetime, it is my hope and prayer that you find that one person. That you find maybe a couple, maybe a few, where friend and secret is really close. And you can feel safe to be who God has made you to be. So that's the Hebrew word for friend. We're going to look at this story specifically. I want to introduce you to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18.1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now what do you know about Jonathan? Jonathan was the heir apparent. He was the first in line to the king's throne. He was the son of Saul. We have a saying in the south, I'm sure it's a southern colloquialism, I'm sure it originated here, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And we see, and we'll see in a minute in 1 Samuel, that, that father Saul and son Jonathan were factually close. They knew about the kingdom, they knew about politics, they knew about the battles, they knew about life and each other. But Jonathan was different, thank God. Jonathan had something in him. Jonathan wasn't about himself like Saul was. Jonathan loved the Lord. And Jonathan knew about loyalty and he valued loyalty. You know anybody loyal? You know somebody that just values staying close? Isn't it just precious because of how rare it is and how, it mean, how much it means? And that was Jonathan. So get this. This is important in understanding the story and the meaning behind it. Jonathan would have been king. He was the prince. And you would think because he was born in the palace and he had privilege and power, you would think that he would kind of have that stereotypical stuck-upness 
that princes have. You would think, simply put, that Jonathan would be a jerk. Guess what? Jonathan was not a jerk. He had every reason to be. You know some people, they're jerks. They, got, they have reason to be, and they are jerks. And then they're the few that they have a lot of reason to be a jerk, but they're not a jerk. Jonathan was likable. Jonathan was a, sort of a Navy SEAL type warrior. He fought in the battle. Are you kidding me? A prince not hiding in the palace, but on the front lines? That was Jonathan. Not a big gap, I don't think, between Jonathan and David. Jonathan was skilled. Jonathan was a fighter. Jonathan was on the front lines. And because of that, he was popular and he inspired the love and loyalty of the soldiers in the army. And Jonathan meets David. He meets him at a tent. He meets him next to his dad. He meets David as David comes in and talks about the battle and Goliath out in the valley. Some of you have been there. I have where this battle was fought, this most famous battle. There's this valley with the Philistines on one side of the mountain and the Israelis on the other side. And the battle took place there. And it was a battle. It came down to man on man. And David was the one, while the others were shaking in their boots, while the others cowered in fear, David was the one. He went into the tent of King Saul and Jonathan heard him say, I'll do it. I'll fight. And David watched the courage. I'm sorry, Jonathan watched the courage of David and Jonathan witnessed the giant fall. Jonathan sees his friend David walk back in the tent with the decapitated head of Goliath. Now, do you have a best friend? Honestly, if you want to stump a man, do this later today. If you want to stump a man, ask him, hey, who's your best friend? Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, we, I, I play God, I play God, and then I, and, uh, who's your best friend? And if you have a best friend, some of, you, some of you do, some of you can identify them, and some of you can identify when you met them. You can say, hey, we met at church, we met at school, we met back in the day, we met out here. Here's where we met. And you, can, you can tell descriptors about the day that you met your now best friend. But I bet you can't say, hey, I met my best friend in a tent with a decapitated head of a giant. And that's Jonathan, and that's David. But look at this passage, 1 Samuel 18, 1 again. I mean, what is that? Knit at the soul, loving him as his own soul. Your friends, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. What do your friends indicate about you? What are the conversations centered around when you're with your friends? Movies, sports, shopping, Pinterest, hopefully if you're a dude, that's not the case. But what are your conversations centered around? For David and for Jonathan, it was a common passion. It was a love of the Lord. It was being loyal to him. And to each other, they had a common passion. C.S. Lewis famously said, friendships are born when one person looks at the other and says, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And here we see that. We, we see two men who love the Lord, who wanted to see the kingdom advance, who wanted goodness and justice to reign and not evil to prevail. And they had this in common. You see, listen to me, especially the men. Hobbies and interest wane. They fade over time. But a common passion is more permanent. A friendship where there's a shared heart, where secrets can be kept and made, where there's love and loyalty. These are more permanent, where there's depth and consistency and vulnerability and transparency. And that's what you have in this soul friendship between Jonathan and David. 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to read 17 verses. They're on the screen. Stay with me as we read these. This will unpack a little bit of this story. 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 to 17. 
Then David fled Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? In other words, dude, what's up with your dad? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you, and he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off for your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. You guys ever played the trust game? In the trust game, there's the truster and the trustee. And the trustee, you know this, right, stands back and falls. And the truster's three or four feet behind him. And, of course, the idea is catch me. And the trustee, the goal for the trustee, it's so hard. It's just instinctively natural. It's It's just built in you to what? To look back and especially to... Throw the foot back, right? And the idea there is somebody that you trust is behind you and they are worthy to be trusted. And there's something in us that just says that life is not worth living unless you have somebody you can trust. And when you trust somebody and they catch you, it leads to greater trust. And we see a father, Saul, who cannot be trusted. Now, if you read this narrative found in 1 Samuel, you will see that Saul on the surface seems like a good guy. It's like, hey, David, I like this guy, David. Like, he's, I like him. There's something in him, and he plays the harp. Man, he can play some harp. And when I need comfort, when I'm dealing with my jealousy and paranoia and anger and rage, David plays the harp, and it just comforts me. He's a good guy. But you see, David, I'm sorry, Saul sees David as a pawn. And Jonathan sees David and he sees his faith. Saul had issues. He had big issues. He had anger issues. I don't know of a person, I certainly don't know of a man, 
who, has, who, has, who doesn't have to be careful with their anger. And your anger flows from your heart. And it's how you see the world. And here's a guy who had a lot. Who had a lot and he felt threatened by it all. He felt threatened that he would lose it. Hence the paranoia. Hence the jealousy and hence the anger. How do you deal with your anger? Several times a day I feel like if I'm not careful it could go the wrong way. But I'm, every, every person I meet, every conversation I have, uh, I have an opportunity to love, to greet, to honor, to listen, to care. And those closest to me and those closest to you are the ones that can trigger that anger, right? You know somebody well and you can push buttons. You get married to somebody and they have access to the master control panel. And they can push that one button that makes you go nuclear, right? And Saul was a guy that went nuclear often. Instead of rational discussion, you know what he'd do? He'd throw a spear. How do you deal with your anger? Saul would just throw a spear. Now let's talk about it. No, let me just throw a spear at him. So David is a man who spent time hiding. Do you know that Saul sent assassins to kill David? David hid in caves. David wrote a psalm that Bono and U2 made into a song in more modern day, I think in the 90s, and God lifting us out, out of the pit of having to be in the miry clay and the hiding and being um, stuck, having enemies. And this was David because of Saul. Isn't it true? An insecure leader can wreak havoc. On the world stage, in the workplace, in the home, the insecurity of a leader can wreak havoc. And Jonathan sees David differently. Now think about it. Jonathan himself was a stud in battle. Yet he didn't have the courage to stand up and do what David did. But he didn't resent it. He rejoiced. David admired the faith. Jonathan rather admired the faith that he didn't have that was found in David. How do you see the world? Do you resent or do you rejoice? Few things tell more about your character than how you deal with the successes of people around you. Do you resent or do you rejoice? If God's doing a little bit seemingly more appreciable work in somebody else, are you able to rejoice in that? Or do you resent it? First Samuel, I'm going to back up just a bit. First Samuel 18 and verse 4, we'll put this up. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Language that's so precise and so purposeful. It's a foreshadowing, this language, stripped himself of the robe. We have a lot of new babies at Fondren Church. There's one named Samuel being held by his mother back there. And I'm, we're watching these young families. We're watching babies um, be born into the world. And it's just fun. It's been many, many years for Susan and I, but it's fun to see young couples find out they're pregnant. And they have that gender reveal party that I never go to and protest. I think it's so silly. But anyway, uh, the couples go and they, they get a sonogram. They go to, to a doctor and they get this picture. And we did back in the day, but it wasn't as good a picture. It's like 3D sonograms that they have now. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm talking over my head here. But it's just, it's just like fancy stuff. And it's so beautiful. And these young couples see a picture and they're in 3D, oh, look. And they make it out. They hear the assuring rhythm of a heartbeat. And they're able to make out features. And they're so excited. 
they show that picture to people who want to see it and don't want to see it. And they're just excited. You have to, you have to display some level of excitement, right? Or they won't be your friend or come to your church. But anyway, so you're just so excited about their sonogram and they're really excited. But look, they're more excited about meeting that baby face to face. Of finding out how that child is going to be. What's their temperament? Who are they going to be like? They're looking forward to something, right? And in this meta-narrative that is the scripture, the Old Testament was written for our instruction. But it is a sonogram. It's an early foreshadowing. It gives us a limited, a helpful, instructive, really good, but limited view of what's to come. And last week, I encourage you to see yourself in the story, but don't make yourself the hero. Everybody wants to be David, right? But you're not David, you're Israel. Jesus is David. He fought for you. And your Goliath is your greatest enemy. It's what separates you from God. And today, we, we see in this passage, we see a sonogram. We see, we see a foreshadowing of the greatest friend that anybody could ever have. Look at this little grid I put together to kind of show you um, what Jonathan gave up. It, this scripture says that he offered him his robe and his armor and his sword, his bow and his belt. The robe represents the status. Philippians 2 says this about your Savior, about Jesus. That even though he was in the very nature of God, he considered equality with God. He didn't consider anything to be grass. But he became nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. Being made, fashioned in the likeness and appearance of man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave up the royal garment. He stripped himself and willingly laid it down to open up a world of friendship with us. And we see this foreshadowing in a man named Jonathan. We see giving up. We see him give up the armor, the security, the sword, which represents vulnerability. In that day, do you know the new king would often have his men go and kill all the family of the old king? Brutal, inhumane, terrible, and horrible. But it was a common ancient practice. Why? They didn't want anybody to be a threat to the throne. So Jonathan's saying, you're an honest and admirable and innocent man, and I hope you'll continue to be. But by giving up his sword, he was displaying great vulnerability. A great quality in any friendship. And we see this. We see Jonathan giving this up. David had this friendship that was knitted at the soul. But Jonathan wasn't David's only friend. He had a few different types of friends. Three types of friends that David had. One, he had a crown bestower. A couple of these aren't actually words. Bestower is not actually a word. He, he had a crown bestower. This friend was Samuel. I believe everybody, every life needs someone older and yes, wiser to see something and to call it out. I think you need a mentor. I pray, I have been for many years, that God would grow our church, not so much in number, but in quality and in health. And in order for us to grow as a church relationally, we need some people that are older and wiser. We're awfully young. And it's the heart cry of everybody, I believe, to have someone who's been a little bit ahead of them to say, hey, let me guide you. And we see David, he had this friend named Samuel who was a crown bestower, who saw something in him and called it out. Your identity is based on what the most important people in your life say about you. 
what they say about you, what's actually spoken and called out. And Samuel spoke over David and said, I see this in you. And it shaped his identity. A faithful companion is Jonathan. Look what this passage says in 1 Samuel 23, 16. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. 30 miles. Geography lesson. Jonathan knew at this point that David needed him and he went 30 miles. Are you ever frustrated by some passive friends? You, you, You text them and they're slow to text you back. You, you really need to talk. You're like, I'm, I remember not doing that not too long ago. Like, this guy, I think he's my friend. I'm going to text him and, and let's see if he responds. You know, and you, and you wait and you wait. And they have about as much initiative as an echo in the friendship with you, right? And you got to wonder, maybe, maybe, maybe he's not a friend. And that's the world that we, that we live in. But here we see a guy going at great personal cost, going 30 miles out of his way to strengthen David in the Lord. I know some guys my age, they hang out. They would call themselves friends. Their wives have it in the category of friends. They just get together and talk about sports and politics and a lot of cynical and jaded things and people. And I don't know that anybody that either is strengthening the other in the Lord. And there's so something so different about this relationship with Jonathan and David. And then the third type of friend that David had was a loyal confronter. Do you know enough of David to know this story? This is who? This is Nathan. And Nathan was a prophet, but Nathan was a friend. And Nathan cared enough about David to go to him and confront him, to even to wound him, to have to say words that he needed to hear when he needed to hear it the most. I was reading a book this week from somebody I admire who organizationally was seeing all kind of success. The outward trappings of his life was something to be talked about. In fact, a lot of people were talking about him. He was really making a name for himself. But then those closest to him started noticing things in his life. Just cracks in his character. He talked about the point where he, needed, he knew he needed to change. He needed somebody in his life. He needed somebody to help him just to open up life and to share the tough stuff with. He needed somebody wise. In, in his book, he calls this guy Fred, who was a professional counselor but also became a friend. All of us pick up on some junk along the way in life. We pick up weird ways of relating from our parents, our siblings, our friends, and TV that become habitual and hurtful. The goal for me was to identify the flaws that were a product of my own sin and selfish and deal with them. The goal was to become aware of and correct destructive patterns around the office and at home. My friend began to reveal things about me that he had noticed. Body language and facial expressions Mine were often dismissive and belittling to people. I lost credibility with board members and consultants and leaders without even knowing it. I learned that my mood swings were potent and that my choice of words carried enormous weight. They began, Fred began to teach me and hold me accountable. I still slip up, especially when I'm tired and depleted. I have ongoing tune-ups 
with my friend because lifelong patterns are difficult to overcome. But letting this friend probe around in my life, it saved my career, renewed my marriage, it blessed my kids, and caused our church to surge to new heights. I always thought I didn't need this kind of friend, that I could avoid the proverbial crack up. I'd read about other leaders who had blown it and thought it would never happen to me. I was smarter than that, but there I was. Who is your friend? Who has access to your life and permission to give you honest feedback about your flaws? Who has permission to take the scalpel and skillfully cut out the character cancers that maybe you can't see, but if not dealt with, will eat away at your life? Some people think that if they ask for help, it's a sign of weakness, but the reverse is actually true. Asking for help is a sign of strength and courage. Everyone around you already knows your flaws, so when you, admit it, you, when you admit you need some help, it shows that you're becoming more self-aware. When the board that I work with saw that I was genuinely open to receiving help, they rallied around me. They viewed it as a strength and not as a weakness. One of the reasons we don't seek advice is because doing so requires change, and change is uncomfortable and requires work. Another reason people close themselves off from advice is because they're afraid they won't be able to change. It might mean more failure. When I started my friendship with Fred, I told him I was afraid that I might not be able to change. Fred had seen hundreds of CEOs in his counseling work, and he says that the success rate is about around 40%. The other 60% continue to stumble and often end up losing their jobs and families. He said the difference is humility. Those who turn the corner and take their leadership and lives to a new level are those who are humble enough to receive the feedback and take it seriously. They demonstrate a sincere willingness to look at the data, accept it, and commit to work on it. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That verse is absolutely true. It's not the prideful and arrogant whom God raises up, it's the humble. Humble yourself before God and he will raise you up. In other words, the way up is down. So if you've hit a wall or worn out or confused, if you're afraid and somewhat paranoid about what others are saying about you, thinking about you, even conspiring against you, if you're angry, alone, and feeling misunderstood, I urge you to ask three questions. Am I genuinely open to receive feedback? Am I experiencing fear and pain in my relationships that's pointing me to something? And third, will I be humble enough to address the cracks? Friendship. You were made for it. Your friends will make you. And we can learn from David, this flawed hero. You need a Samuel, someone to help you shape your identity, to see something in you and your potential and call it out. The younger that is, the better. The more godly they are, the more reliable it'll be. And you need a Samuel. You need a Jonathan, a faithful companion. Someone who will not just return your text, but will go way out of the way and give up. And you need a Nathan. You need somebody willing to lovingly confront you. To faithfully wound you. To help you take a scalpel. So that you can learn and you can grow. I think there's a lot at stake for you and the friends around you. I really, really do. And this morning, we're going to begin to close our service. I think we'll have you out on time. We're going to take communion. And these friends, we can find these friends in Jesus. We can find a crown bestower in the one who was rich but for our sake became poor. The one who stripped himself of his robe and gave up his security, his stability, his power. Who gave up. We need that. We need that faithful companion. We find him in Jesus. 
Jonathan had these friends, and they're all found in Jesus, the one who sees in us that we are dead but calls us out to life, that doesn't call us a sinner but calls us a saint. And the one who, in love, is willing to wound us, who's willing to confront us because he sees the destructive nature of our selfishness and wants to call us back on the path. I'm a 50-year-old man. And men, a lot of us are not doing well. And if it's you, don't be afraid to say, I'm not doing well. And I really don't have a friend. You need a friend. And if you have a family, you really need a friend. And I don't know any other way to say this. There's a lot of men and a lot of families on the edge right now. And this stuff about vulnerability and depth and consistency and transparency, it's for you. It's what you need.